And Tim, I'm thankful for you bringing the reading. Thanks, mate. Uh, it'd be good to have Exodus 3 open in front of us, if we can. Exodus 3 is where we're going to be camping out tonight. Uh, that's the majority of where we're going to be uh, focusing our attention. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into our message tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this account of how you saved your people. Thank you, God, that you choose to make yourself known through your word, the Bible. Thank you for this time where we can consider you and this word. Father, please soften our hearts, open our spiritual ears, make us ready to receive your word by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I wonder how many of you like ping pong. Has anyone played ping pong recently? Yes, fantastic. Is anyone actually good at ping pong? Isaac reckons he is. That's fantastic. Um, I think uh, all will be revealed. We should obviously have a ping pong tournament to uh, just see who's got game in our, um, in our little gathering. But here's the thing. Uh, ping pong is actually a really helpful analogy for how you go in a conversation. Uh, I don't know if you've had this thing, you know, how do you go about getting to know someone? So what you do is you walk up someone and you say, how are you going? And you hit the conversational ping pong ball over the net to the other person. And either they'll reply and they'll say, really well, thank you. How are you doing? In which case the ball comes back and you've got a little conversation going. You see? But some people go, fine. Ball falls on the ground at the other side, right? So you get another ping pong ball out and you hit it over again. And depending on what sort of conversation you're having, you're either got a little rally going, which is a good conversation, or you're quickly out of ping pong balls and then you're just there going, awkward, right? So here's the thing. What we want to know is how do we get to know people? Well, hopefully it's in conversation. But we only get to know people to the extent that they choose to make themselves known. We only know people to the extent that they choose to make themselves known. So you can have all the conversational ping pong going, but if they don't choose to make themselves known, you won't get to know them. Tonight we're going to see that God, not in ping pong, but that God is choosing to make himself known. God is choosing to make himself known. And that's what our message is about tonight. Now, last week, we saw that in our series, here's our overview of the Bible, remember, from creation to new creation. Here's the Old Testament section here. That's the new. We saw last week Abraham's story, and we can see right next to it a very prominent pyramid. If I drop it in there, you might think that the story we read tonight happens immediately after Abraham, and then here we go in Egypt. But that's not, that's not the case at all. If we, if we have a look, the Exodus actually takes quite a long time because the people of God are captives. They are slaves in the nation of Egypt for a long time. In fact, for 400 plus years, they are in Egypt. So it's Abraham and then we get to Moses. But how does this guy Moses fit in? How does Moses fit into God's story? Well, God's people have been becoming weary. They've been slaves in Egypt for literally centuries. And they've been doing the work of the Egyptians. They've been building up the whole of Egypt as slaves. So they're weary. And they're beginning to say, where is our God? Remember the great promises that were made to Abraham? Who can remember one of the promises made to Abraham? Owen. Land, yes, a great nation. They'll become a great nation. Anyone else? Blessing. They'll be a blessing to all the peoples around them. 
And so these great promises have been made, but it's now been millennia, and they're wondering, where is this God, this God who made these promises? And maybe they're wondering, are these incredible gods of the Egyptians that are on the side of their pillars, that are in their houses, that are painted on their walls, are these Egyptian gods the winners over our God, the God of Israel? What's been going on? And so God raises up Moses to be the one who will save Israel. But he has a very unlikely start. I want you to see that the story of Moses actually turns up in the book of Acts. This is very unusual. You wouldn't expect this. But in the New Testament, a man called Stephen, why don't we turn there, guys, Acts chapter 7. A man called Stephen is on trial before the Jewish court. And um, he's going to give an account of the history of Israel and does an excellent job of summarizing the life of Moses. Have a look with me from verse, uh, from verse 18. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat and all of that sort of stuff? This is after that. A king comes up who doesn't know anything about Joseph. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. Incidentally, can I remind you, we have a Q&A at the end of this. If you have questions as we go through, please jot them down so we can, we can uh, have them at the end. At that time, Moses was born, I'm in verse 20, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. Then he was placed outside, and Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Moses had taken the job, you see, of being a shepherd in Midian, far away from the land of Egypt. That's how Moses kind of comes up and ends up on the scene. And then if we go back to Exodus chapter 3, we pick up the story at the really exciting bit. Exodus chapter 3, and we look at verses 1 to 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And there he came to Horeb. Just so you know, guys, that's also called Sinai. So he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Well, this is a pretty amazing story. I want you to, to, to just see how many people have been paying attention. How old is Moses at this point, the burning bush point? 
He's 80. He was 40 when he had his murderous encounter with the Egyptian. Did you know that one of the most famous people in the Bible was a murderer? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? He'd killed the Egyptian. He'd run away. And then for 40 years, he'd been a shepherd in this backwater. And so here we see that in the midst of life, the God of the universe speaks to him. He's just doing his job, a job he'd been doing for 40 years, following sheep through the desert. Boom, God turns up. It's pretty remarkable in the midst of his ordinary life. And it's the angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord appeared in the fire. The presence of the holy God of the universe here at this point in time. I want you to think with me about this. Um, It's a pretty strange and curious thing that God turns up in a burning bush. Okay, It's, It's not like there were massive trees like the cedars of California or something like that in the desert of Sinai. They're shrubs. I, I, I use the, uh, the wonderful example of our, our plastic flowers in, in the building to give you the idea, right? God appears in flames in a bush. And you think, okay, fine, God can do that if he wants to. But what if the God of the universe is choosing to make himself known? Why wasn't it a 700-foot-high pillar of fire? That would have got his attention, wouldn't it? It's pretty humble for God to just appear in a kind of eye-level fire In the desert, it's curious and it's humble. And the idea is that it draws him in rather than makes him run away. Have a look in the following verses, what happens next. In verse 4 we see, When the Lord saw he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is pretty interesting stuff. I want you to see, he calls out two times, Moses, Moses. And one of the awesome things I found when I was reading this week is that in Hebrew, to repeat a name is to imply intimacy and connection. Moses, Moses. Do you remember when God calls a little boy called Samuel? He wakes him up in the night and he says, Samuel, Samuel. And and you know, when Jesus says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Or maybe even Jesus on the cross, when he calls out, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why do you forsake me? Do do you see this? It's just a beautiful little part of Hebrew that repeating the name gives a sense of intimacy and connection. So we take it for granted that the God of the universe knows the name of a dusty 80-year-old murdering shepherd in the back country of Sinai. But he does. He knows his name and he calls him by name. And then we see that the place where he says, Moses, you better take off your shoes, right? Better take off your shoes. Why? Well, the place that you're standing is holy ground. Does anyone have a new house that's got holy ground in it? That's a little joke, yeah? Some of you do, you know? You can't come into here until you take your shoes off. No, not working tonight, but okay. Here's the thing. God is saying, you're in my house. 
You're in my house and my house is holy and I want you to take your shoes off to show respect to me. And then he says, who am I? I'm the God of your ancestors, the God who I made promises to Abraham. And so he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So now we have a man in front of a burning bush with no shoes on. What happens next? Something extraordinary, something that we need to know tonight. Those of us who are struggling with feelings, God, life is hard. God, do you really see me? God, do you know what's going on in my life? You see, for many of us, once we have a bad day, we feel God isn't good to us anymore. If we have a bad week, we're thinking, God, I've dropped off your radar. It's been 400 years for the people of Israel. And I want you to hear what the Holy God says to them. Have a look at verses 7 and following. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are impressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So what do we see here? We see something extraordinary. God says, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned about my people. And what I thought, God doesn't care. He says, no, 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 I've seen, I've heard, and I am concerned. He says, I've come down to bring you up out of the land of slavery. He says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to bring the people out and take them to the land of promise the promise that I gave to Abraham. Well, Moses is a good guy, but he's also a very ordinary guy. He's profoundly ordinary. And so he comes up with a question that I think you and I might ask if we think about it a little bit. Have a look at what happens in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. It's a funny thing. You know, we, we, get, we get so familiar with the fact that God's talking from a bush, that God's talking to a guy who he knows by name. And we kind of figure Moses would just go for it. Why doesn't Moses just go, yes, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to go. Well, let me paint you a picture. Egypt is the superpower of the ancient Near East. Okay, it's the one with all the power, all the might, all the majesty. The guy who's in charge of Egypt is called what? Pharaoh. Now we kind of go, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, ooh baby, let my people go. That's kind of what we think, okay? Maybe you sang that song before at some point in your past. But, but here's the thing. He was a god in Egypt, literally. What he said happened. How do we know? Well, have you seen the pyramids in Egypt? They're not built because you're good at persuading people. They're built because you have the power of a God. So God now has an 80-year-old shepherd who's got a murder rap in Egypt. And he says, what I want you to do is go back 
and talk to the God of the superpower of your age and ask him, can I take all this million slaves of the Israelites who are powering your economy, can we just chuff off and leave you? Now, is that going to be an easy thing to do? And so Moses is going, what are you saying, God? I can't possibly do that. And God says, you see power and you're afraid. But here's what I want you to know. I will be with you. God says there is a greater power. There is a greater power. There's one greater than Pharaoh, greater than Egypt. It's me. And whoever you are, we are more powerful than the Egyptians. Why? Not because of you, but because of me. I will be with you. And so Moses is to take comfort because of God's power and his presence. And then God gives him a really weird piece of assurance. He says, hey, you'll know that I've been with you because when everybody comes out, you'll worship me on this mountain. Moses goes, fair go, Lord. I just brought the sheep here because I figured they'd have a good feed. And now you're going to tell me we're going to have a national worship ceremony on the side of Mount Sinai. How's that going to happen? But God says, you'll know I'm the God who is able to do these things when it comes to pass. Now, Moses has a question to follow. He has a question to follow, a follow-up question. He says in verse 13, Now Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's, uh, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you were to call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God says, I am. That's what he says his name is. And I, I put the Hebrew up there. I'll, I'll never do this again in church. I never put Hebrew or, or Greek up on the screen. But here's Hebrew. Now, everybody, so you can identify the people with the cool tattoos, right? Okay. When somebody has this on it, it reads this way. Yod, hey, vav, hey. Is that right, mate? That's right, yeah? Okay. This is I am. And what does it mean? Well, we're going to have a look at that in a second. I am. If you say it in English, you would say Yahweh. Can everyone try that? Have you heard of Yahweh? Okay, so that's God's name, Yahweh. The God who reveals himself as I am. Now, in your Bible, I want you to see that Yahweh is often written down as the Lord. Can you see the funny little capitals? Have a look in here. You can see the funny little capitals. Um, you'll see it in verse 15. Say to the Israelites that the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me. So when, that, when you see the Lord like that, you're seeing the name of God. And I want you to note that it's actually a re-revelation. God had told them this name before. He said it to Abraham in um, Genesis 15:7. He said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh who brought you out of the Chaldeans. And then we see that he's the God who is connected. Say to the Israelites, 
Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In other words, God's saying this new name, Yahweh, is connected to the God you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my name. This is who I am. And he says, I'm a God who makes promises and keeps promises. Now, this name, the Lord, in our English Bibles, Yahweh, in the original, it occurs more than 5,000 times in the Old Testament. Right? So when we see it, we should be thinking something about our God. It's probably a helpful name to say that he is Yahweh, that he is the Lord. When it says, I am there, it can also be translated, Tim, Tim and I were talking about it before, it can also be translated, I will be who I will be. I am who I am, or it could be, I will be who I will be. What does that tell us about God? Well, first thing it says, the God who says I am has no beginning. I am. And he also has no end. I will be who I will be. I will go on being who I am. He's also the God who is independent of everything else. I don't need anything else because I am. It also means that everything else is dependent on that God because he must have made it. Because I am, we can know that God is constant. He will never change. He can always be trusted. And because he's the God who says, I am, he is the God who you can't make idols of. This is kind of fun. Um, See, if I tell you that I'm the God of thunder, what's the picture you've got in mind? Thor, thank you. Yes, you guys will go straight to Thor. You can make an image of the God of thunder. If I tell you I'm the God of the oceans, what will you do? Well, you pick, sorry? Yeah, Poseidon. And you'll you'll go to uh, Lego Masters and you'll make an uh, an awesome Poseidon. If I say to you, we're playing a game of Pictionary. Has anyone played Pictionary? It's going to work better than in the morning, maybe, where everyone just stared back blankly at you. I, I said, if you were given the words I am in Pictionary, how would you go? It'd be hard, wouldn't it? How do you draw a picture for I am? Why is this important? Because the God who says I am doesn't want you to reduce him to a statue, doesn't want you to have a handle on him so that you can turn him into an image. The true and living God reveals himself as Yahweh, I am. This is God's proper name. It's good to know. Well, what happens in the story next? What happens is that Moses does go and he says, uh, well, God tells uh, Moses to go, say to Pharaoh, I'm going to take my people into the desert for three days. Okay? And we kind of go, well, that's not a big ask. Maybe Pharaoh will let them go. But in this time, saying I'm going to go for three days meant that it's a way of saying we're going to go forever. It's a bit like someone saying I'm going on walkabout and you expect them to be back for tea. No, no one knows what walkabout means either. Fantastic. All right, this is working really well. At any rate, here's the thing. Go tell Moses, uh, sorry, go tell Pharaoh, I'm, I'm going for three days. And then he says, he will never let you go. God says, Pharaoh will never let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Who will be that mighty hand? We'll see in a second. And God says, I have a plan to set my people free and you will plunder the Egyptians. You will get rich from the Egyptians. How will that happen when they're slaves? Well, Moses was wondering, and he's saying, do you know what, God, I've got one more question for you. The problem is I'm not a good speaker. 
I never won an award in class for my presentations. I'm not very good at speaking. And God goes, you know what? Your brother's just coming up the road. Aaron's coming along. I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll put your brother with you. You and Aaron can go and speak to Pharaoh. Now, I've got a, I've got a brother who I love to bits. And I reckon me and Starry and God, we'd go and see Pharaoh. So I think, I think that's really cool. And then what God does, they, they say, we want to let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And God says, well, I've got nine plagues for you. And each one of these plagues is specifically attacking a god of Egypt. And in each time, another god of Egypt falls, another god of Egypt falls, until eventually there's none left. And God says, I am now ready to deliver my people. And the knockout blow will come on the night of Passover. But I'm going to prepare my people specifically for the Passover. And we're going to see this in in, uh, Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, God says, in verses 1 to 11, as we heard in the reading, what you're to do, Israel, is you're to gather in homes. You know our vision here at New Life? It's to see new life in Jesus come to every home. We love homes. They're gathering places. And so God says, gather everybody into homes. And if somebody's living on their own, gather them into your home. And then there, we want you to calculate how much lamb to have. I'm liking the lamb theme at the moment. How much lamb to have. And then share it. You're to eat one lamb. You're to share one meal together. And you're to eat it like fast food. Because on this night, you're going to get out of there before the sunlight comes. So it's a fast food meal. And then he says, what you're going to do is you're going to take the blood and you're going to paint it on the roof, uh, sorry, on the, um, on the frame of your door. And then God says, what you're going to do with this perfect lamb, you take a perfect lamb, you take its blood, you paint it on the door, on the door frame. And the reason this works is, God's saying, I'm going to kill the firstborn in every home in Egypt. In order for it not to happen in your house, what we're going to do is we're going to take this perfect lamb and in place of your son or daughter, this one is going to die. How will I know that there's been a death in this house? Because you paint the blood over the top. And then what he says is what's going to happen? The destroyer is going to come. And what he's going to do is he's going to pass over this house. Do you see? The Passover is a passing over of this house and he passes over because blood has already been spilt. And on that night, there starts to be a wailing. Crying in the midnight in Egypt, crying happens. And it's crying because of tragic judgment. It says there's not a house in Egypt without someone dead. So there's weeping all over the whole of the country and Pharaoh issues his command, you guys have got to go. You've got to get out of here. And as they go, they remember what God had asked them to do. And they say to their Egyptian neighbors, hey, guys, have you got anything you can spare for us? And they piled them up with gold and jewels. And they plundered the Egyptians. Why did that happen? Did they deserve to get gold and jewels? They were being set free. No. But this is the grace of God. He creates a nation that has nothing. They're slaves. And they walk out as rich conquerors. Only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. So they're set free. And then they come to the edge of the water of the Red Sea. 
And they look behind them and they see that Pharaoh's chariots are coming after them. And they're thinking, we're going to die on the shore of the sea. It was wonderful. Thanks, God, for delivering us. And now we're going to die because none of us can swim. And God puts up a pillar of fire. Remember he came in a bush before? That night he puts up a pillar of fire to keep the chariots of Egypt away. And a wind blows and it opens up the sea. And God's people walk down into the depths of the sea and walk through on dry land. They get to the other side and as as the Egyptian chariots dive in and follow them, the last of the Israelites are getting up. And while they're in the middle of the water, suddenly God closes it. And it says in the songs of Israel for millennia afterwards, the horse and the rider we will see no more. God has cast them into the depths of the sea. God saves his people from the most powerful nation on earth. Miraculously, by his powerful hand. And what this reminds us of is that Jesus is our better saviour. Exodus is fantastic, but it sets us up for Jesus. Because Jesus is the revelation of God. You can meet God in a burning bush, but if you really want to meet God, you've got to meet him in Jesus. Have a listen to Hebrews 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, including bushes. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. If you want to know the true and living God, you meet Jesus. Jesus is also the great I am. Have a listen to this. This is an incredible story. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, okay? And they're having an argument backwards and forwards. And he mentions Abraham. And the Pharisees come back to him and says, you're not yet 50 years old. They're talking to Jesus. Jesus is 1,500 years after all of this happened. Jesus says, they say to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And you think, that's a weird sentence. What did they make of that? Have a look at what they did next. See? See what it says? At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they pick up stones? Because they understood when Jesus said, I am, that he was claiming to be God. And so Jesus is the great I am. And then we see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the perfect lamb who dies in place of the people who deserve to die. Jesus, it says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When we look to the cross, we see the Passover. Do you know when Jesus died? It was in the Passover. It was at the time of Passover, and so they were ready for a sacrificial lamb. And Jesus is full salvation. Have a listen to the way that freedom is described here. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, in the Bible, God says Egypt is like captivity to sin. To be saved is to be set free, even through the water's of the Red Sea, like baptism, until we land on the opposite shore, free, because God has saved us. Because God has saved us. Well, what do we do with this story? I want you to take your shoes off again. 
Now, that would be a bit pongy, wouldn't it? Keep them on, boys, particularly. Why do I want to say that? Guys, I think we often lose the holiness of God. We'd go up to the uh, burning bush and we'd go, Hey, God, it's good to see you. Where I think every now and again we need to stand in awe of our God and take off our shoes and say, God, we're not worthy. You're holy. So we need to learn to take off our shoes again. If you haven't already done it, I want you to join the exodus from sin. Say, today is a great day to get to the other side and be saved in Jesus. I also want you to tell around your dinner table the story of the Passover. Wouldn't it be awesome if, uh, just like the Jews, God gave us a meal so that we could remember how we were saved? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had a way to eat together as the people of God with symbols that would remind us of what he has done? Wouldn't it be awesome? Well, that's exactly what we're going to do very soon. We're going to have our Passover meal, in inverted commas, where we remember the body and blood of Jesus. We're going to take the Lord's Supper really soon. And as we do that, we're going to tell a better story even than the Hebrews knew. What do I want you to do? I want you to find your story in the story of God, the one who saves the people from slavery to freedom. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. You're the God who saves, the one who saved Egypt, uh, saved from Egypt um, in the Old Testament and brought your people to safety. Father, I thank you that in Jesus, our Passover lamb, you've brought us over to safety with you. Father, may we know that freedom, may we know your holiness, and may we trust you as the great I am. Amen. All right. We're going to have our Lord's Supper very soon, but I did want to give you a chance because it's a pretty involved passage to see if there are any questions tonight um, that might have come up. So if you've got questions, please ask away. Doug. What's the difference between God and an angel? In Exodus 3, it talks about the angel of the Lord came to the bush and then... A few verses further on, it's revealed as being God. And then in the Passover, he talks about the angel of death shall pass over. And then later, God refers to himself as passing over. How do you differentiate between God and the angels? It's an outstanding question, Doug. And I read extensively on this topic this week. And uh, there are lots of things to say here. In short, um, not every angel is God. There could be an angel of the Lord, as in one of the Lord's angels. Gabriel is an angel of the Lord. However, in the burning bush, we have the Lord's angel, the representation of the presence of God. Okay? Now, that is quite a different thing in the sense of there are innumerable, I don't know how many angels there are, there are innumerable angels who are messengers of God. There is only one true living God. And so, uh, it seems that in the account of the burning bush, the very presence of the living God is presented in such a way that Abraham can meet with him. That's really unique. It's really unique. There aren't too many occasions where we have the Lord's angel as opposed to an angel that's owned by God. Do you see the difference? And so you, there will be another, a couple of other circumstances where that happens in the Old Testament, but not many. Why does that happen? Because God wants to personally engage with him. 
And so he doesn't just send a messenger. He comes and calls Moses. Now, uh, the next analogy you can find again, I, I guess when, when Jesus calls to Paul on the road to, um, uh, to Damascus, um, he doesn't see the form of Jesus, but he hears the voice of Jesus. Lord, uh, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When God wants to really closely communicate, it seems that it will not be just a messenger of God, but God himself. When it comes to the destroying angel, Doug, I'm not sure. Um, it, it, the, the one that comes through is called the destroyer. I'm not convinced I can reconcile that with God the Father and put those two things together. So I think that is an angel owned by God as opposed to the angel of God. Um, in other words, I don't know that the Lord himself goes through and kills all the firstborn, but he designates someone to be the destroyer to go and do that. Does that help you? Are you going to come back on that, Doug? Yep. So, so, so when, when it says God passes over, um, I think the, uh, the work of God, as in he is achieving his salvation end, by this judgment on, e on, e on Egypt. Um, it's bound up with what he wants to do, and so it is God, in the sense, passing over, because God's judgment isn't falling on this house. God is passing over his judgment on them. However, is it God in person by the, by, the, by the destroyer passing over? Maybe we need to talk afterwards, Doug. I think we can separate those two things. I think there's the agent of God and God's will, and when a house is spared, God has passed over it. But the one doing the Passover might actually be the destroyer. I think that's a possibility. I'm happy to talk further. I'm glad you asked the question. Another question. Yes, go, Jeanette. So, um, God referring to himself as I am, uh, could you also say that um, it means that he's incomprehensible to humans because we live in a different dimension and we can't, can never fully comprehend him? And there is something. His ways or... Yeah, that's really good. Um, so there is an otherness about God, Jeanette, which I think is right. There is a sense in which um, our mortality can't comprehend His immortality. I think that's right. At the same time, the God who chooses—I'll go and pat my favourite bush over here. The, the God who chooses to speak from a burning bush that it's at roughly human height is making an effort to be knowable. Okay, So he's ultimately not possible. We can't hold all of him in our heads, but he tries, tries, I can't say tries about God the right way. Um, he works to reveal a true part of himself to Moses. So we know God as he truly is, but not everything about God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he is incomprehensible in the sense that he's God. We'll worship him forever because he's not like us. But the bits we know about him are true. Does that make sense? And when he comes in human form, in the, in the form of his son, that's particularly because he wants us to be able to understand him. So he wraps him up in human flesh and comes and walks amongst us so we do understand him. Yeah. To a, po to a point, I suppose, enough to accept grace, I suppose. Y yes, exactly. He wants, to, he wants to communicate with us enough that we'll be saved and come into relationship with him. So he's awesome but knowable. But we'll never know all of him, which is why heaven will never get boring. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. Thank you. It's a great question.
Yes, down the front, Michelle. Were the Israelites actually in slavery for 400 years or was, were, are we referring to yep. from Abraham to them? Uh, it's a really good question. And um, right now, at the end of uh, a full day of preaching, I can't precisely answer the question. However, um, it seems like they were keeping cattle in Egypt for quite some time until there was a change of Pharaoh and then things started to get messy. Okay. However, the period of time that they were in Egypt was probably that 400 years. So I think you're right in saying, was it 400 years of slavery? Probably the answer to that is no. Exactly how long they were actually slaves for, off the top of my head, I can't tell you. But it's a subset of 400. Does that make sense? Is there something behind the question? Or are you just, just curious? Lovely. Curious is perfectly fine. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Naomi. This might be one of those incomprehensible situations. Sure, okay. That's a helpful introduction. Um, <laughs> I guess my question is, you know, we talked, you talked about how God heard them and was concerned. Yes. Um, yeah, just the fact that he does hear and he is concerned, but then he just kind of chills out for a bit you know he's got his plan but it's not really happening yet and he just watches them suffer in the meantime I, I guess that's hard to reconcile like knowing that he does have a plan and you know obviously like you said that's reflected in our situation at the moment that we are in suffering too and and he has a plan through Jesus but in the meantime yeah I, I don't know how to form that into a question it's really good it's a good observation um yes God it's wonderful that you heard but if you heard, did we have to wait 400 years? Because I figure if you hear, who doesn't come to our aid? Right? Especially because obviously he has the power. Sure. So Why not have the power to make your plan quicker? Great. I think that's a good question. Um, here's something that we're told. We're told when God speaks to Abraham, he says that I will take you from Egypt and I will take you into the promised land. And he says, you will be captives in Egypt for 400 years, this is the interesting line. He says, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment. What's going on there? God is, God is looking at the whole picture. And he's saying, I'm going to judge the nation of the Amorites. And their sin is going to reach a pinnacle point where I'm going to intervene. And they're going to lose their land and they're going to be judged. And he says, I can't do that yet. I can't do that yet. I can't do that until that point has happened. Here's the other incredible thing. Um, um, a small family, Abraham's family, a small family go down to Egypt. Now, if God had said, I'm going to give you the promised land as a family of 75 people, right? They would have gone up, right? And they would have knocked on the door of the first nation and said, I'm terribly sorry, we're taking over your land. And they would have come out with four or five guys with swords and killed them. Now, this is a radical thought. How does God enable his promise-keeping people to go and take the promised land? Well, he has to make them big and huge, big enough to be an army to go and take the promised land. How does that happen? Well, it can only work, actually, when they're inside another nation. Because if they were wandering around, one of the other nations would have just squashed them. And so they're inside the protective chrysalis of another nation. They're growing up 
inside the nation. When they're ready, they burst out and God takes them. Now, all of this, right, all of this, God has this mega plan. I'm judging them. I'm building you up until you're big enough to take the promised land. But in in between, ordinary Israelites are suffering and they're going, God, do you care? And God says, you won't believe how much I care. I'm preparing a promised land for your people. I'm keeping my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. It will be impossible for you to do it unless you grow up to the point that I'm I'm building you to. I love you. I care for you. And your suffering is not lost. But you will suffer while I achieve my plan. Now, I think, Naomi, that is an intellectually satisfying answer, but it breaks our heart, doesn't it? But, But God... Pardon my French. It sucks for me right now. Right? So what are you doing? And God's saying, I have bigger plans and purposes that don't mean I've failed to care for you. I'm just working big things out. And when we wonder, does God really care? We look at Jesus and we see, yes, he cares. Enough to send his son to be our Passover lamb to die on the cross. God cares and we suffer. God cares and we suffer. Not he doesn't care because my suffering says he can't. No, no, no. He's working all things out. And when our suffering is done, Paul says our light and momentary troubles are are achieving an eternal glory. One day, if you keep trusting Jesus in the midst of your suffering, you'll have endless grace. No more tears, no more death, no more suffering, no more disease. God will end all suffering. He just might not do it today. Can I finish on that point? Because I'm done, I think. It's a great question. I'd love to talk further. What I want you to see is God does care and he will save and he sent us an awesome reminder so that we will remember God is the saving God. We're going to do that tonight by taking our Passover meal.